Welcome back to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew, and now that I have a few monthly supporters, I was like, okay, I gotta bring out the big guns now. So I had a friend send me a message about the Alma Kellner case, which I have to admit I had not heard of. And once I started reading the book Louisville's Alma Kellner Mystery by Sean Heron, I was so intrigued I couldn't put it down. So I'm doing something new, and for the first time, I'll be releasing a story that spans at least two, but probably more like three or four episodes. And I do want to take a moment to thank my new monthly supporters. I love making this podcast, so it's really encouraging to have the support. And if you haven't yet, you can go to anchor.fm slash jesse-bartholomew. And there's a tier that's just 99 cents a month. It only takes a second. And your support is greatly appreciated. Now, let's get into the story of Alma Kellner. Our story starts at St. John's Catholic Church in Louisville, Kentucky. If you're local, you might know it now as St. John's Center for Homeless Men, but in 1909, it was the church where eight-year-old Alma Catherine Kellner sometimes attended Mass. The church was just six blocks from Alma's home at 507 East Broadway, so it was a short distance and she walked it pretty often. Her parents, Fred and Florence Kellner, and their three children usually went to a different church as a family, but if Alma was running late or staying with a friend, she would go to St. John's since it was closer to her home. Alma's Aunt Elizabeth also lived with the family, and she helped Alma pick out an outfit on the morning of December 8th. Together they chose a plaid dress that was cream, tan, and brown with a little green and rose stripe in it. It was trimmed with pearl buttons and a green velvet collar. She also had on a black and white checked coat with a velvet collar, and she left the house wearing a dark red hat, tan gloves, and black shoes and she carried a brand new handkerchief in her pocket. By 9.45 a.m. on the 8th, she was skipping down Broadway on her way to High Mass at the church. And she was alone that morning because her mom and her aunt had gone to an earlier service that day at their regular church. On her way to the church that day, she was spotted by a druggist whose store is on Hancock Street and a postman, so they both saw her walking down the west side of Hancock Street. Alma was supposed to come home right after Mass that day, but by 11.30 a.m. she still wasn't home, and at first her mom, Florence, brushed off her worry, thinking maybe Alma had simply disobeyed her and gone to a friend's house. She was eight years old, after all. But as hours passed and there was still no sign of her daughter, Mrs. Kellner decided it was time to alert her husband. So she called him at work at the Frank Fair Brewing Company, which was one of their family businesses, and he hurried home. And quickly they rounded up a neighborhood search party and started looking for Alma. When Father George Schumann of St. John's Church got the news that Alma was missing, He explained to the Kellners that Mass that morning had been at 9 a.m., not 10, so Alma would have been late anyway, and he also said that he hadn't seen Alma at all that morning. Next, they checked with her elementary school, 
and they talked to a bunch of children that they knew she was friends with, but none of them had seen her. The next step was to check with all the other churches in the area to see if maybe when she realized she was late, she just went to another one to try to catch a service, but none of them had seen her either. Mr. Kellner gave the Courier-Journal an interview the following day, and here's what he said. Quote, Alma would always know the way home, and if she'd gotten lost, she would do as we always told her to do, tell her name and address. I am convinced that she has either been stolen or suffered an accident that has resulted in her death or serious injury. Where she could be, I do not know, but I will leave no stone unturned to find her. She may be in the river, and if she is, we will drag the river to find her. I am all but crazy and do not know what to do. I can hardly remain in the house when I know that my baby is away from home, either dead or in the hands of those who are her enemies. When the Kellners called the 2nd Police District, the chief of the Louisville Police Department, Captain F.P. Portman, sounded the alarm across the city. A rumor quickly spread that since Alma was the granddaughter of the late J.F. Kellner, president of the Central Consumers Company, maybe she was being held for ransom. But there was no set of instructions or anything to indicate that to be true. Newspapers printed the story of Alma's disappearance the very next morning. They printed a photo of her and provided a description, including what she was wearing the previous day. And at first... Fred Kellner thought maybe it was a ransom situation, given the value of his family business. But even though his father had recently passed, they actually hadn't yet settled the estate, so he didn't have access to the large sum of money that people thought he had. They waited for word from local doctors and hospitals of an injured child, and when none came through, they ruled out a potential accident or injury. And reporters just kept suggesting to the family that maybe she got lost, but Florence assured everyone that her daughter was a smart girl and it just wouldn't have been like her to get lost. Florence was sure that her daughter had been kidnapped. Finally, police thought they were getting a break in the case at around 8.30 the next morning when a bar owner named Gus called in and said that he'd spoken with a customer who said he'd seen a child matching Alma's description the afternoon before. And they checked that out, and it ended up being a dead end. Other tips came in, but there was nothing of any substance, and they were just at a loss. Now, another officer involved in the case openly expressed his concern about Mr. Kellner's lack of cooperation on providing information that the police needed to properly work the case. This was Major Patrick Ridge, and he seemed to really suspect that the family had something to do with this. He questioned why they weren't called earlier when she went missing. And there was also a rumor that in between shifts of police guarding the residence, a meeting occurred with a former maid of the Kellners and two strangers, and that after that meeting, Mrs. Kellner seemed a lot calmer. Now, at this time, reporters were pretty much hanging out around the Kellner home 24-7, keeping tabs on their every move. So 
they were constantly surrounded by both reporters and police. And by Thursday, the Louisville Chief of Detectives, Captain John P. Carney, had put himself personally in charge of their investigation. Part of his plan included checking all the boat docks along the Ohio River to make sure that she wasn't being kept on a boat. And he also sent out an alert demanding all boats that left the port since Wednesday be stopped and searched. And they worked on getting word out, not just to the rest of the state, but across the entire country for everyone to be on the lookout for this missing girl. Fred Kellner had a cousin named Frank Fair, a Fair City Brewery, which all of my Kentucky listeners are familiar with. Frank was the current president of the family company, and apparently the family would all hop in Frank's big red touring car and drive around the city searching for Alma. And later, Frank would kind of become the spokesperson for the family. The Kellner family also asked that a popular psychic from across the river in Jeffersonville come over and try to help them solve the case. And after going into a trance several times, she could tell them nothing, which was honestly very surprising to me. In all of my true crime research, it seems like clairvoyants always have something to say. But no, she, she had nothing. And by December 15th, Still, no one was offering a reward for information about Alma, either by the family or the authorities, and some people were finding this to be a little strange, that there was no reward. Two days later, on the 17th, police ordered employees of the sewer department to search the sewers near the church and near the Kellner residence, and this came up with nothing as well. As a side note, the disappearance of Alma Kellner was taking a toll on people in the community, and everyone was sort of reacting differently. For example, on January 14, 1910, so a little over a month after the disappearance, the, chan- the janitor of St. John's Church, a man named Joseph Wendling, had abandoned his wife and his job at the church and skipped town. And months went by, and there was no break in the case, until May. On May 31st, 1910, the Courier-Journal's front page headline read, quote, Arrest follows discovery of Alma Kellner's mutilated body. A body had been found. A man named Richard Baxter Sweet was a plumber who'd been assigned to pump out water that was pooling in the cellar of an old school building on the St. John's Church property. After he'd pumped out a bunch of water and attempted to locate the leak, he realized that there was this sub-cellar beyond the cellar. So he moved further into it and he jabbed his shovel into this space, attempting to clear whatever was blocking it. And that's when he realized what it was. There was a tiny shoe and a rolled up carpet in the corner, and inside the carpet was a small skeleton. Sweet ran back up to ground level and immediately telephoned the first district police station on Shelby Street. Captain George M. Brown and Lieutenant M.J. Raleigh were quick to the scene, joined by Jefferson County Coroner Dr. Ellis Duncan and Deputy Coroner William Cameron. 
The two coroners collected the remains in a basket and took them to the undertaker's location just blocks away on Chestnut Street, where she was placed on a marble tabletop, and then the examination began. It took five hours, and they spent that whole time trying to find clues that would help them positively ID her as Alma Kellner, even though they all already suspected that it was. After they finished, Coroner Duncan made the remark that the victim had, quote, been murdered in a most brutal and inhuman manner. The ribs on one side were all shattered, the skull seemed to have been crushed, and bones in the right leg were broken. And it also appeared that someone had attempted to burn the body, since some of the bones had signs of charring. Here's an excerpt from the coroner's report. Quote, Head split open from the forehead back to the base of the brain, as though it had been done with some heavy instrument. On the right side of the head, the cut was clean. On the left, it extended down to the jawbone. The right shoulder blade is intact. The right arm is attached to it as far as the elbow. The right hand is missing. The left arm and shoulder blade were found attached but nearby the body. The left ankle was found on the right side. The leg and foot of the right side were broken but still attached to the torso. Practically all of the flesh is gone. The heart and the vital organs are intact and in their proper positions. The bones are all broken and the ends are seared. The body was nude except for the shoe and stocking. Now, as the autopsy was being conducted, investigators were combing the area, collecting soil and debris from the scene. Captain Carney led the search and proceeded to study parts of the interior of the church buildings around where she'd been found. And they found some more of the same carpet that the body was wrapped inside, lining the floor of the room where Joseph Wendling, the janitor, and his wife, Lena, had been living. Once they made that observation, they collected the clothing left behind by Wendling to be examined for blood, just a few pieces of clothing. So they took that and they also took some of the carpet to examine. Frank Fair went to identify Alma by her shoe and they were also able to identify her from strands of hair they recovered, which matched Alma's hair color. Now, this was the early 1900s, so I guess at that time, that's about as good as it got. When they discovered the body, the janitor's wife, Lena Wendling, was still living in that room at the church, and so immediately she was taken to police headquarters for questioning. So here's the information she gave Captain Carney. She was from Germany, and her maiden name was Arnold. Her husband was from France, and the couple moved to Kentucky because her brother was already living there, and she wanted to be closer to a family member. She said she had no idea that that cellar even existed. She had never been down there. She said her husband left her unexpectedly on January 14th, and she told police that honestly, she didn't make a big deal out of it or file a missing persons report because... He was actually known to just take off for a while, so it wasn't that out of character. She also told police that her missing husband, Joseph, had been to jail in the past for, quote, fooling with girls at Bryant and Stratton's college. 
Following her questioning, Captain Carney, along with Detective Charles Simmons, went back to the church where they did an even more thorough search of the Wendling's room. Lena had told them that she'd washed several pieces of Joseph's clothing and had gotten rid of some, including an old hat, but police were able to locate the clothing and noticed what appeared to be more bloodstains. They also found a small gold ring and a little skirt or waist pin. The Kellner family couldn't identify the ring, but they said the waist pin did look like Alma's. These items were found in a trunk in the room, and when asked about them, Lena told police that some little boy had just found them and left them with her. So after all this, Lena basically sat in a jail cell and cried and cried, swearing that she knew nothing while several items of theirs were taken to be tested for blood. The next logical step was for investigators to find Joseph, but this would be no easy task. At first, Lena told police that her husband tried to take some of her money when he left and that she had said no, but later she changed her story and said that she did give him $190, but either way, she said she had no idea that he was planning on leaving her. Father Schumann told police that he had hired the couple on November 9th, 1909, just a month before Alma went missing. Furthermore, the Wendlings had around-the-clock access to the master key of the rectory, including to the building under which Alma's body was found. And he told them that he had last seen Joseph around noon on the day that Alma disappeared. Now, the room under which she was found hadn't been used as a schoolroom for a long time. It was recently being used just on occasion for local organizations to host meetings. The room was to the east of the rectory, and the walls of the two buildings were only separated by the width of a small hallway. After learning the layout of the church buildings and examining all the evidence, police figured it was probable that the murder did not occur in that room, but that she was taken there later. And when I say that the room wasn't used frequently by members of the church, I mean that Father Schumann didn't even know that subseller existed until just before they found the body, when the new janitor saw that it was flooding. Or at least, that's what Father Schumann told police. After the subseller and the Wendling's room, police expanded their search to the rest of the church. And that's when Deputy Coroner Kammerer found a sleeveless ribbed undershirt tucked in the corner of a small closet near one of the entrances. And this undershirt had large dark red stains on it. Since the body showed evidence of being burned, they assumed that it must have taken place in one of the cellar furnaces under the church, but for reasons they did not yet know, the killer switched gears and decided not to, or was for whatever reason unable to, completely incinerate the body. So a city employee named Richard Height was called in to inspect the furnace areas the following morning around 11 a.m. And that is when the child's other foot was found, among the ash, still enclosed by a leather shoe. Not long after that chilling discovery, investigators also recovered from the scene a crucifix, a feather, a glove, and one pearl bead. 
And the way all these things were found throughout the inner workings of the church led police to assume that whoever had committed the murder had to have been familiar with the layout of the place. Following all these discoveries, Frank Fair made a public statement on behalf of the Kellner family. He said, quote, I entertained the theory all along that the child had met with foul play, but in desperation, I clung to the kidnapping theory in order to buoy up the hopes of the family. When no one came forward and offered to negotiate with us to return the child for a ransom, I felt sure that she would not be found alive, but nevertheless, I hoped that our worst fears would not be realized. They determined that it was most likely the case that Alma had walked all the way to the church that day and that sometime shortly after her arrival, someone took her, possibly while she was kneeling in prayer at the altar. This is the theory police gave reporters, followed by the idea that perhaps the killer had initially planned to burn her, which is why the body was partially cut up. And then for whatever reason, the plan changed and the killer then decided to use quicklime to try to hasten his disposal of the body. The shoe found on the body was a match to the shoe found on the foot in the furnace room. And it was at that point that once and for all, they had concluded their body was, without a doubt, that of Alma Kellner. Even though they were certain the body found was Alma's, they would not release it to the family just yet. A day later, Frank Fair offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer. At this point, there was a huge search underway for Joseph Wendling, their prime suspect. The police were frustrated that Lena was not fully cooperating and giving them conflicting statements. In the meantime, they ran a background check on Joseph, but could find no evidence of any prior convictions contrary to what Lena had told them. Also, Father Schumann took it upon himself to hire two private investigators to aid in the investigation. One of them had found a large bundle of mail written in French and had begun the process of translating them. People were coming at this investigation from every direction. Nothing like this had ever happened in Louisville, and people were really scared. This could not happen again. They held a small, quiet funeral service for Alma, and then the casket was taken to St. Louis Cemetery on Baxter Avenue. And apparently, the family members did not attend this funeral. After she was buried, the investigation went full steam ahead. The Louisville police zoned in on how to best proceed by the book without hurting any future case they may have against the killer. The dollar amount for the reward started to increase, and as funds from many sources rolled in, it tipped $6,000. And this whole time, Lena Wendling sat in solitary confinement, charged with being an accessory to murder. She got a lawyer, and he argued that it was illegal for them to be holding her with no evidence simply because she was the wife of a suspect. But the judge was like, well, we do have some evidence, and maybe she should try to get out on bond. But that was not ha happening with their financial situation. So, Lena Wendling sat in jail until her trial.
Contrary to Lena's claim that Joseph had no family in the United States, the police learned that he may have had some relatives in New Orleans, so the governor of Kentucky drafted a letter that read as follows, quote, Dear Governor, This whole community is shocked and upset by the brutal murder of little Alma Kellner, and I feel that every effort possible should be made for the capture of her murderer. Section 1932 of the Kentucky Statutes provides that in aggravated cases of murder, when the accused shall flee from justice, the governor, on petition of the circuit or county judge of the county, may issue his proclamation offering a reward not exceeding $500 for the apprehension of the accused. Certainly, this is an aggravated case of murder. The accused has fled from justice, and therefore, I think it greatly in the interest of justice and for the preservation of the lives of its citizens that you, as governor of this state, should at once offer the highest reward which the statute provides, that is, $500, for the apprehension of the murderer. Very respectfully, Muir Weisinger, County Judge. So at this point, they're putting the state of Louisiana on high alert, saying, look, our guy might be down there. And from my understanding, they had just one recent photo to work with of their suspect, and it was taken from kind of far away. So trying to make it so that people across the country would recognize him was really difficult. And on top of that, he could change his appearance easily. And in fact, there were multiple instances of police in Louisville and in other states across the country arresting the wrong people. And that, my friends, is the end of part one. To recap, eight-year-old Alma Kellner went missing in December of 1909. No body was found until May of the next year in a sub-cellar of St. John's Church. The investigators concluded that the murder hadn't been committed in that sub-cellar, but that it had been moved there later by the killer. The primary and seemingly only suspect was Joseph Wendling, a janitor who disappeared about a month after the murder, abandoning his wife, Lena, and his employer, Father Schumann. The police were just starting to take their search beyond the state of Kentucky, and we'll pick up there next time. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts or share on social media. And follow me at KY History Haunts on Twitter and Instagram, and Kentucky History and Haunts on Facebook. And send an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com if I need to make a correction or if you've got a topic for me. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.